Okay, as I mentioned, we'll be in the second half of James. You're welcome to turn there. We're coming to the second half, and up to this point, James has communicated some really important truths that carry over into our study today. So let's reflect for a minute just a few of the things we've picked up in our journey up till this section. But the most important possession, James has reminded us, that we have is our faith in Jesus. The only thing that will matter when every person, every person, every person on the planet stands before God, the only thing that will matter is the righteousness, the goodness of Jesus that becomes ours by faith. We enter into relationship, into fellowship with God because of Christ's goodness, His perfection, His righteousness. And truly, that's the only thing that matters. That's it. In the meantime, James says the various struggles, the trials that we are surrounded by produce a steadfastness in this faith that is our most important possession. You with me? And so trials can't take our faith away. They can only prove to make it more complete, more whole, more perfect. In other words, our trials actually can make our faith work to function. Our various trials, in other words, bring what we say we believe, because there's not a one of us in the room where this isn't true. This is what we say we believe, and here's where we live in relationship to that truth. True? We're all in progress. So this is why it makes zero sense for us to stand around and talk about why you're farther than me, right? Because none of us is there. But our various trials bring what we say we believe and how we live closer together. So our trials, again, take our most precious possession, our faith, and make it work more perfectly, more holy, more complete. And because of that, we can say in our trials, I can consider this joy because it's taking me to that place where the most important thing in my life is becoming better, more whole, more complete. I can rejoice in that. I don't like the trial, but I can get happy about what it's doing unto me uh, because my Father cares for me and loves me. I've said this before. This is a helpful visual. Somebody said it to me once that God takes our trials by the back of the neck and he pushes it down in front of us and says, you will serve my son. You will serve my daughter. God in his ultimate power takes our trials and makes them do good unto us. We can take joy in that, yeah? That's what James is saying. Now, one of the things I appreciated about Ian's teaching last week was his clarity in getting past the obvious command, which was don't show partiality to why we should be impartial. He did a really good job with this. It's easy to see the command without understanding the motivation. 
this was impressed upon me. Works need to be rooted in faith in order to please God. So our faith needs to have works. But I thought Ian's message was really helpful in reminding us that if our works aren't rooted in faith, it's not about works alone. This is the point James is making. But our works also need to be rooted in faith in order to please God. Without faith, it is impossible to please the Lord. So not only does our faith work, but our works need to have faith. And so in getting past the command to the motivation, I felt like we were able, Ian led us to get to the heart of James's teaching. And so while James simply could have said, be impartial... He used a lot of different words to help us come to these conclusions. He wanted us to know why we should be impartial. In other words, James ties the action of being impartial to the faith of believing what is true about God. We are all right? Being impartial is not just the behavior we do Because we're Christians, being impartial is something we do because it's the very thing that rescued us. That God was impartial towards us. So being impartial is not just behavior, it is an act of faith. We believe that God was impartial to us, therefore we can be impartial. We are impartial because by faith we see That the Lord of glory was impartial towards us. Faith works. And works are done in faith. Three key verses that he laid down for us that really um, drove this home for me. And again, this flows into our passage today. The first one was, hold to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ The Lord of glory. He is the glorious one. He chose us. The spiritually bankrupt. The spiritually poor. He came to us. That is ultimate impartiality. The second verse was. Has not God chosen those who are poor in spirit in the world. To be rich in faith. And heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him. In other words, James is saying that our faith works out in the way we engage people. In other words, because by faith we believe that we're rich heirs and we have all we need, we don't look to people as resources to use them. The only way to not use people as resources is to believe I have all I need and I actually have something to offer you. This is James when he said, you become judges with evil intentions. Well, the only way to get rid of that is to realize that we're rich and we have it in inheritance, true? We believe that by faith and because of that we can act in faith. And then last, mercy triumphs over judgment. God's mercy for us has triumphed over judgment. The judgment that was belonging to us, God's mercy triumphs over it. 
So now may we let the mercy we have received become the mercy that we give. Now, we hear this all the time, and it's not just the church that says it. People in the world would say, you can't, ha- you can't give away what you don't have. If you haven't received mercy, you have a hard time giving away mercy. We of all people are the greatest recipients of impartial mercy, true? And so we ought to be able to give great mercy. Our faith, hear this, our faith guarantees that our mercy will triumph over our judgment. And if we're having difficulty with judging, it's not, oh, I got to stop judging. If we're having difficulty with judging people, it's because we've forgotten that we've been, that we've received mercy. Yeah. And so the goal is not, I got to, I got to be, I got to stop being such a jerk. I got to stop. No, the goal is to say, I have been the recipient of great mercy. And then our faith, our belief unto action that we are the recipients from the Lord of glory of this great mercy, our faith guarantees that our mercy will triumph over our judgment. And so again, all of this carries into our selection, our, our section passage today, James two fourteen through 26, in one of two ways. In number one, on the heels of all this, James now pauses to check in with his readers. So how are you doing? How is your faith working? Remember, just a few paragraphs ago, I said, don't just be merely hearers of the word, but doers only. And now he's pausing and checking in and he's saying, and how's that going? How is your faith working? And then the second way that it relates, all of this relates, is that he's going to cut off an argument that some might state and saying, well, I have faith, I just don't exhibit it that way. Or I have faith, but it just, it doesn't come out like you're saying it should come out. And so James is heading off that argument at the past because of the of what he's developed so far, he's anticipating people because he knows his readers, right? Remember, he knows he's writing to Jews in exile and what their temptations are. And so he's heading off an argument and saying, no, you can't say that. You can't say I have faith and not that not be revealing itself. That's not possible. Now, remember, the Israelites were people who grew up in this whole religious culture. It's all been religious. Day in, day out, we're going to hear more about this. Their mom, their dad, their grandparents, they're all Jewish. They're all religious. They grew up in this. It's very familiar for them. They're coasting. And now they're coming into trials and difficulties, and they're tempted to coast all the more and rely on their old heritage. And James is saying, you can't say you have faith and not actually work it out. doesn't matter if it belonged to your parents. This has got to belong to you. Faith works. So he's going to head off that argument. So let's read the passage and then we'll walk through it together. Starting in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Suppose, so now he introduces this hypothetical situation. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and without daily food. Now, why is he talking about that? Well, again, going back to Ian's passage, he's talking about that because he just talked about being impartial towards the poor. 
And so now you see this link. Now he's bringing back this argument and saying, so now these people I just said, don't only not just, don't only not just something like that. Don't just be impartial towards them, but serve them. Your faith isn't just not doing something, but it should be actively pursuing and doing something. So suppose that there's these poor that we just talked about. And they're without clothes and without food. And if one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by actions, is dead. But some will say, well, I have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. His faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, and not by faith alone. In the same way was not even Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So we're going to break this section up into three different parts. The first one is James's big idea. The second part is James' concrete reasoning. And then the third part is his conclusion. So this first part, James presents his big idea. It's in verses 14 through 17. And again, he opens with this rhetorical question that he later repeats in verse 16. But he asks this, what good is it, my brothers? If someone has, says he has faith, but does not have works. And then again, second time is at the end of 16. He says, what good is that? The King James renders it, what doth it profit? Who's profiting from that? Who's benefiting? You say you have faith, but no works. What good is that doing to anybody around you? So again, James is pausing to reflect on everything that he's just teaching. And he's asking his readers, is your faith at work? So here's, I've given you all this teaching. How are you doing? Is your faith providing steadfastness in trials? Is your faith causing you to say, man, I don't like this trial, but this is doing good unto me. It's bringing what I say I believe and where I live closer together. Christ is good. God is kind. And I'm believing that more and more, even in the midst of my family's difficulty. Is your faith working? Is it living itself out in showing mercy and impartiality? I mean, ultimately what James is doing in the book is he is heralding this point. The whole point of faith, of having faith, is 
the glory of God. The whole point of faith is saying, God, you're good, you're amazing, you're fantastic, and you're true. I believe you. You with me? It's the point. And he's asking then, how can faith bring about the glory of God if it is not accompanied by works? So this is James's point. This is his big idea. What does faith do if it doesn't produce good works? It's a prophet. Or said another way, what is the good? Or who is profiting from your faith if it is not to tangibly, manifestly change the way you interact with God and other people? What is it about? If faith is about you and goes no farther than you. If faith doesn't change the way you interact with God, is that not the point of faith? True, church? That it changes the we believe God. Well, that changes. If I believe God, that fundamentally changes the way I live. And it changes the way I interact with man. The only way to please God is by faith. The only way to obey the two greatest commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself, is by faith. True? Now, to be fair, this section does not come without some confusion. Even as I talk to you, I'm assuming some things. Nineteen times in the book of James, he uses the term brothers. Nineteen times. Five chapters. Over and over. Why is he doing that? Because he's teaching often of an assumption. And that's, his, that's what I'm doing here. I'm teaching off of this assumption that James is talking to people who are followers of Christ. They are believers. He's assumed there's justification by faith. Now he's dissecting and what does it mean to have faith? He's not talking about earning justification. He's talking about how it functions once we have it. You with me? So I'm making that assumption. But again, this section of James's letter doesn't come without confusion. Even the great reformer Martin Luther had his troubles with this book. Now later he would kind of pull all this what I'm about this quote I'm about to read out of his readings that he I'm sorry his writings that he um, that he did later on. He pulled that out, but he said this, St. James's epistle is a really right strawy, S-T-R-A-W-Y. It's like a straw man. It doesn't hold much together compared to these others, Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, 1 Peter, and 1 John. For it has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. Now, Martin Luther was a man. He was a great man. But he was just a man. But he did single-handedly stand at the forefront and combat years of error and abuse around the, the Bible. And most often, as is the tendency of those who are pioneering a new movement, they stand against error by inducing overstatement. Right? 
They kind of overstate things. One pastor I follow, he overstates a lot of things. And I realize he's doing it because he's a change agent. He's got to speak way past culture to pull people through and out of it. And I believe that's what we see Luther's comment, commentary on James is doing. But the truth to be told, again later, he recanted that and he said with deeper study he understood and he did see the gospel in the book of James. But the truth to be told, not one of the letters in the New Testament, including the ones that Luther lists, Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, none of those is sufficient to stand on its own. All of the books of the Bible need each other to fully develop the words of God. As different parts of the body of Christ serve the sovereign purposes of God and help us to understand who God is and serve in different ways and different roles, so the Holy Scriptures have their various roles to play. So Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 12, The eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Likewise, we need different authors to give us a different perspective on the same things. Why we have four Gospels over one life. But often, people want to pit James against Paul. And part of the reason is because both of them, James in J- here in James chapter 2, the end uses Abraham, and then Paul to the Romans in Romans chapter 4, they both seem to use Abraham as an example, but argue seemingly different points. On the surface, it seems to contradict itself a little bit. It appears that Paul is arguing for justification by faith alone, and James is arguing for justification by works alone. But a deeper study will help us to realize that both Paul and James are not contradictory combatants. They're not face-to-face warring against each other, but they're complementary defenders. Now, why am I telling you all this? It's not to impress you, but I am telling you, if you ever run in and have a conversation with a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness, you are going to go to this passage because this is where they go. By the way, If you have a conversation with someone who is a staunch Catholic, this is where they're going to go. And you need to understand what James and Paul are saying. And also understand that if they trip you up a little bit and you don't know enough, it ought to just send you back. The answers are in here. You just have to go find them. And we don't have time. Remember this year we're kind of skipping over things as we've said before and we're getting bigger pictures which is what we're doing here but a deeper understanding you you absolutely see the gospel the clear gospel in the book of James. But again Paul and James are complementary defenders. One teacher likened Paul and James not standing face to face but standing back to, to back defending and contending against differing enemies. So Paul is defending the faith in Christ alone against legalism and works righteousness, while James is defending the faith in Christ alone against licentiousness and easy believism. They're both contending for the gospel. But both Paul and James are arguing for a faith that works. And again, our passage that we opened with For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. Verse 9, not a result of works, 
so that no one may boast. Now some may say, see, there it is, faith alone, sole fide, not works. But Paul isn't finished. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for God works, for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so in the same way, James is arguing that we are saved by faith for good works. But again, he seems to be arguing from the other direction. He's coming at it as talking about Paul starts with faith and then goes into good works. And James seems to start off with, we got to have works if if we're going to have evidence that we have faith. But again, his big idea in this first section is at right near the end of his conclusion, verse 16, or verse 17, so also by itself, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So now he gives his reasoning, verses 18 through 25. And so again, to do so, he starts with this hypothetical conversation. So, suppose somebody says, it's hot in here, isn't it? It feels hot up here. Do do we have the, Tim, can you see if that's? Man, I'm in short sleeves and I'm like, either I got to calm down or it's getting toasty. So again, James starts with this hypothetical conversation. You have faith. If someone says he has faith but does not have any works. Or we could rephrase it this way. One person says, I have faith. And another person says, I have deeds. And what we're seeing is what Paul, what James is trying to communicate is whatever way you're talking about it. I have deeds. I just don't have faith. Or I have faith. I just don't have deeds. Paul's point, James's point is you can't pull them apart. They're not two separate entities. One person can't say, well, I have this and I have that. True faith has deeds. It's James's point. And deeds that please God, have to have faith. They cannot exist in two separate categories. So he responds to this hypothetical with a challenge. Show me your faith apart from your works. You can't. But I will show you my faith by my works. James is nullifying this proposed argument. Genuine faith and works are inseparable. And again... Most take it that James is only arguing one side here. I always did. Well, faith without works is dead, which is true. But he's also arguing simultaneously from the other side. True works can't be separated by faith from the, from faith. Works not done in faith toward God are no works at all. 
You with me? This was hidden to me before. But this is why it was so good that Ian got to his point last week. Because it's not just about show impartiality, but it's you show impartiality because of who God has been to you. You show impartiality because your faith depends on impartiality. It is part of literally who you are and how you have become who you are. So then he carries this argument further. Verse 19. You believe that God is one? Now here he is quoting from the Jewish Shema. The word Shema means hear. This is a prayer spoken daily for generations by Jewish people. Twice. Once in the morning they pray the Shema. And then once at night before they go to bed they pray the Shema. And then on the Sabbath every Friday night uh, before, as they get ready to celebrate Sabbath during their Sabbath celebration they pray the Shema again. So it goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is God and the Lord is one. James knows he's talking to his Jewish audience and he quotes the Shema. Now, church, hear this. He's talking to a group of religious people who are praying twice a day plus Fridays. They wake up, they go to bed with this prayer and he's saying, you pray this prayer? You believe the Shema? You do well. Even the demons believe the Shema. And they actually respond emotionally. They shudder, James says. Or they actually get chills that could be rendered. Or they bristle. James is talking to a group of people who are regularly praying all the time. And he says, you pray the Shema? Even demons believe the Shema. And they respond emotionally. It's not about emotional response. In other words, great start. You believe the Shema? You do well. Great start. But it doesn't end there. Hear this. Out of curiosity... I started uh, looking through some really famous country artists and started looking at their gospel records. Look, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not judging particular people, okay? So I'm not even going to say names. But I'm talking about people who sing gospel songs, would make whole albums, and then just looked at Wikipedia and go down, you can touch on personal life. And just to see what they sing... And where they live doesn't match. But church, I'm telling you, we have, I don't think we realize how this has impacted us. I'm talking about us white folks, us honky Christians sitting right here. I don't think we have realized how this has impacted our, our thinking. Um, many of you know my brother is sick. And um, one of the things he wanted to do was go uh, do a study on heaven. And so I encouraged 
my brother, him and my, my two brothers are going through this book. Great little book, by the way. Highly recommend it. This is a cliff note version of a bigger version, okay? And so he answers from a biblical perspective just things about heaven. And again, it's very good. Very good. You get to the end, and he talks about now how can you know you're going to spend eternity in heaven? And one of the things he does is he goes through the end, and he just says this, For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast, is the passage we just read. This gift cannot be worked for, earned, or achieved. It's not dependent on our merit or our effort, but solely on Christ's generous sacrifice on our behalf. Now is the time to make things right with God. Confess your sinfulness and accept the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on your behalf. And then he says, seek the Lord while he may be found call upon him and then um, if you do this Christ will save you and you'll have all eternity um, to be in the new heavens and new earth and I'll look forward to seeing you there I'm telling you our cultural reality has seeped into his thinking that is half of the equation it's the start we have to get there by faith alone but there's a relationship component there, church, that we, we're following Christ. This isn't a prayer we pray and then it's finished. True? This is James's argument. This is a lifelong commitment to a person. This is the God of the universe who calls us by name and says, follow me. Jesus says, to the one who endures, he will receive eternal life. What's he saying? He's saying, this is a relationship. It is a commitment for the rest of your life. And I think we fail to call people to that reality. This is by faith alone in Christ and all that he did on your behalf. And you agree and you say, I believe that. And then you need to know enough to know that this costs. Christ says, if anyone wants to follow me, if he wants to come after me, he must put down his life Put down his life, pick up his cross, and follow me. Church, this is far more than a prayer uttered. This is what James's point is. You believe the Shema, you do well. But this is a relational commitment to the God of the universe. Lord, you're good, you're kind, and, and I see all that you've done for me, and I am willing to give you the rest of my entire life. That's the invitation. And I'm going to follow you. And I'm going to keep following you. We don't have time to go into all of it. But it, I just want to be clear about this. It is also not up to us to keep or maintain our salvation. It's not what I'm talking about. Okay? I'm not talking about us keeping this thing going. God did the work. Now it's up to us. And we generate our own. I'm not talking about that. But what James is arguing is that there is a relational commitment that when we have received such great mercy, that this is something that we need to know and, we, and people need to know when they're signing up. This is a lifelong marriage covenant commitment. It's like committing to a marriage. I'm not divorcing. I'm not going out. So help me God. Everybody in the room, we're standing up here with the pastor, hold us accountable. True? This is how we do marriage. Unless death pulls us apart, I'm going nowhere. Everybody, hold me accountable to this. Church, this is Christianity. Christ, look at all you've been, all you have done for me. 
I love you. You've given your, your life for me. I have nothing but you. This is fantastic. This great exchange that you would want to marry me. Everybody, hold me accountable to this. I'm going to get baptized. I'm going underwater. I'm going to show everybody. I belong to Christ. Help me follow him. Don't let me leave him. He's the best thing I got going. On my bad days when I'm being an idiot, call me back to him. Counsel me. Talk me back into him. This is what our commitment is. Mary was having a conversation with a lady. And she just did a fantastic job just talking to her about what the gospel is. And this person was saying, well, I'm not sure about this and that. And, and Mary said, I really thought she was going to like pray. And I said, hey, you did such a good job. She understands that there's something else she's not willing to do yet. That's okay. It's okay because she really needs to know that this is a lifelong commitment and it's, and she ought to be willing to do it. You're not talking or we're not talking people into stuff. True. We're not psyching them up and getting them excited. And then they get in the door, they buy the whole car. Now they own some timeshare someplace in Tallahassee that they don't want. Right. And then they said, oh, I tried Christ before. No, you didn't. You were talked into it and prayed a prayer. You didn't have Christ. And I said, Mayor, when, when God calls your friend to himself, she'll say, that is wonderful, that's amazing, and I'll give my life to that. Then she understands the gospel. But if it's hesitant, and I'm not really sure, don't, don't talk her into it. When she hears God's call, and she goes, that's worth giving my life to and help me get there. Then she understands the gospel. This is what James is saying to us, church. That is the gospel. Your faith will work. James is arguing for more. So we just read, you believe the Shema, even the demons believe He's not even content. I mean, that's a pretty hefty statement. Oh, you believe? Ah, uh, the demons in you. You have the same mindset. Uh, hello? Now he doubles down. That wasn't good enough. Remember when I said James isn't, you know, James is fast roping in and he's kicking doors open? Okay, so now he's going to get ready to do that. Here he goes. Do you want to be shown, oh foolish person? James is right in the front door. That faith apart from works is dead. And then he gives two examples. Abraham, a Jewish patriarch man. And Rahab, a gentle, a Gentile, gentle, maybe that too. Gentile prostitute woman. These are completely two extremes. Abraham, the, whole, the father of the entire Jewish nation, who had the very words and promises. He's standing out under stars, and God is speaking to him. And then Rahab, the prostitute, who hears hearsay, hearsay about who this God of the, Gent, the Jews is, and that he's going to come in and kill her whole town. And she's like, I don't want any part of that. And I think that's going to happen. 
And I might want to do something about that. So she hides spies. You have great, amazing faith and just a little bit of faith. You have Abraham, the patriarch, and Rahab, the prostitute. And that covers, guess who? Everybody in between. And you know what James is saying? I don't care if you've got this much of God's word. And I don't care if you've got that much of God's word. You know what matters? Faith and believing unto action. It's what's, it's what's important. I believe God. And then as R.C. Sproul says, and then my faith comes out of my fingertips. Look at verse 23 of chapter 2. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Here's James's point. How do we know that Abraham believed God? Because he said so? Because he prayed the Shema twice a day? How do we know that Abraham believed God? Because he was willing to do whatever it took. Because he acted. How do we know that Rahab believed God? Because she hid the spies. James is saying, you say you have faith? How do I know? That's why he uses these two people. We know Abraham believed God because he acted in faith. Abraham was not justified by the works. Abraham was justified because he believed unto action. And we know he believed because of the action. Faith was combining with his works. Verse 22 you see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. This word completed is the same word we used in one four. Remember that? It's teleos. It means a completely integrated life. A life where actions are consistent with stated values and beliefs. It's I say this and I believe this and I live here and teleos is a completed life. And what James is saying is Abraham's life was completed. What he said he believed and what he did were completed. He's not saying that his, his works justified him. He's saying that his faith was completed. I'm trying. You with me? It's this James 1 thing. Your, your faith will be made perfect through trials. This is what Abraham happened. His faith was completed. It was made whole. His life, he, because he put his son on the altar, it matched his faith. It said, that's true. His faith is true. The same was true with Rahab. And so Paul says again in Galatians 5, 6, this is an amazing passage. You should read the whole thing, the whole chapter. But Paul says this, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or uncircumcision, neither Abraham nor Rahab, his people who were circumcised, her people who were uncircumcised, Jew, Gentile, Paul says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything, but only what? Faith, working, through love. 
what faith, if this is in your notes, right circle faith and then put object. This is our object, is our faith. Working is the action. Love is the motivation. That's exactly what James is saying. The only thing that matters is faith working through love. So here's James's conclusion, verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. If you try to pull good works out of faith, it is the same exact thing as pulling the spirit from the body. It dies. You can't have a body without the spirit. You can't have faith without good works. You pull those two things apart, one of them is dead. That's his point. So where does that leave us with application? One of my concerns, and I was talking with one of my sons about this, was how do we teach this passage without sending people off into a spiral? I don't know if I'm saved. What if I'm not saved? I'm not sure I'm saved. We had this conversation before I left for Georgia. Because that's not the goal here. Watching a series of videos by John Piper called The Preaching Class. And one of the things he says in that preaching class is this. Preaching is designed by God to keep people on the way. To help them get home to heaven. My heart resonated with this. He says, pastors are an instrument week after week to help people stay out of hell and get to heaven. Then he says, now you may say, what kind of view of eternal security is that? Then he says this, it is a view that says the only faith that brings a person home to heaven is the faith that bears the fruit of obedience and love. That's helpful to me. My job, my role in our church is to help us stay out of hell and get to heaven. To have a relationship with God. To draw near to Him. To know what it actually means to have faith. It's part of my job. Your job is to continue to go, God's been good to me. He's been merciful to me. He's kind to me. Whatever it takes, help me get there. Help me to get from here to there. I'm in. I've been in. Help me to get there. So let me help you for a minute. Because if you get stuck, like I typically have done, man, I'm not even sure. I'm a believer. I'm not, I don't even know. And then I just get stuck there and it's ambiguous and I don't know how to quantify that. And man, if I look back over my life and try to figure that out, I'm telling you, that's a red hot mess. You look backwards and try to, you know, better, did I pull this off? How am I? Right? True? It's not the goal of our time together. So let me give you four passages and some things to consider by way of application. Romans 10.9 very simply says this, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. So the first application from this letter to the Romans from Paul is this. Confess and believe. Man, 
Jesus, you are Lord. Unpack that in your own mind. That means you're God of the universe, you're king. You came to get me, you're Messiah. You paid my sin debt. I believe that and I confess it. Confess and believe. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So the next step is, man, I confess and I believe, and my life is no longer my own. And so I'm going to give myself to you, and I'm going to live by faith. So confess and believe and live by faith. I'm committing to live by faith. What does that mean? What does that look like? How do I do that? Romans 8, 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So here's the application. If I'm doing my job and the Spirit is helping us here, I confess and believe. I determine to live. How do I do that? Father, there's things that are going on in my life right now that I know are not of the Spirit. The way I engage here or do this or I handle this part of my life or I treat you or this area of what despair it's like you don't exist in this place in my life every one of us has one of these places in our minds that if the evil one or our flesh wants to take us for a ride we don't even know which end is up in our spiritual lives true we all have one of those places pick one and say honest i just i just want to grow in my ability I just want to grow in my ability not to live in the flesh, but by the Spirit to put that to death. Help me to put that to death. I want to express my faith in this one area, in my marriage, in my parenting, in my private life, in my character. There's an area here, Lord, not a hundred areas. Not, I don't even know if I'm a believer. I don't know. I've talked to you enough. That's where my mind goes, right? You remember that? That is not conviction. And that's not of the Holy Spirit. That's condemnation. It's big. It's huge. You can't do anything about it. The Spirit is specific and He brings conviction. He says, let me identify this thing for you and let's get after it together. If by the Spirit you put to, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, flesh you'll live. You'll live. Man, I confess and I believe. And I live by faith in the Son of God. It's not my life anymore. It's His. Father, help me to put to death this thing in my life. And then 1 John 3.18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. And by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before Him. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and He knows everything. So here's the first thing, confess and believe. The second thing is live. The third thing is put to death by the Spirit and live. And the third thing is is celebrate and comfort yourself. That's what John is saying. If you're growing and changing, you're not talking about perfection here. Christ did perfection for us. 
But if you're growing and changing and you're saying, Father, by the Spirit, there's a couple of things I want to put to death, not a hundred things, one this week. And I want to grow and change. John says, that alone ought to tell you to be able to say, I'm doing it. I'm growing. I'm changing. I'm, I'm making, I'm putting some things to death. And John says, when your heart starts to condemn you, you can shut him down and say, I belong to God. I confessed. I believed he's his life is now my life. I'm putting off some of the misdeeds of my flesh that drag me down that aren't of Christ in me. I'm putting some of that off. I'm striving. I got brothers and sisters that are helping me, and I'm doing it. And John says, this is how we know we belong to the truth. Because our faith is producing love. And then we can set our hearts at ease. And then as we sing most often at the end of our times together, now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to him who will keep you to the end. It's not about us keeping ourselves. To him be the glory, the honor, the power forever and ever. Amen. It's true? It's true? Say it's true. Amen. Father in heaven, thank you so much for defining for us what it looks like to live in friendship with you. So we're not guessing. And many of us have lived in guest land before when we've said one thing and our whole life doesn't match. And it causes all kinds of confusion in our lives. But you invite us into this relationship, into a marriage, into a covenant where we belong to you in friendship. And we say, you've been so good to me. I want to be like you. And you fill us with your Holy Spirit. You empower us to do the work. And then you remind us that this is a relationship that we stay in fellowship together. This is not about doing and don'ting. It's about loving and living and abiding. And thank you that James does a really good job helping us to see it, reminding us this isn't about a religious community. This isn't about religious behavior. This isn't about behaving yourself and being morally upright. It's about really poor people needing the rich grace of your love, Father. That's us. So help us as we confess and we believe. And Lord, inspire us to pick. Give us wisdom to know the things that we can work on together with you. And then we can consider it joy because you're making our faith more whole. And we can rejoice and rest in the finished work of Christ on our behalf. Keep moving forward in you by the power of your spirit. Thank you for your word and your help in all of these things. And they belong to us in Christ. So we pray in his name, Jesus, amen.